Let's get a running head start into our text this morning, beginning John 19 with verse 28. We read that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, which was a, a, a branch, and they put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, to tell us die. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Verse 31, therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, then John adds for us, for that Sabbath was a high day, that the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Anytime you study the gospel records concerning Jesus' week of passion, there is one thing that is very, very difficult to avoid. The timeline for events. In fact, if your study leads you to a harmonizing of the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this particular issue, setting a timeline, grows all the more convoluted and in many ways controversial. The truth is most Bible commentators sidestep any type of lengthy expose into these matters often stating when you reach a point of controversy, well, it's complicated. For example, in his commentary, David Guzik will acknowledge controversy but fail to give definitive answers. Concerning the precise chronological order of events, commentator F.F. F. Bruce, who, by the way, is known for lengthy commentaries, he makes a worthy observation writing, the discussions, and he's speaking of the timeline, are irksome, and their results uncertain, and they are apt to take attention off of far more important matters. Honestly, I agree with Bruce's his sentiment, as well as Guzik's approach. As I've prepped the last several Bible studies, working through this text, this week of passion, I have struggled as to whether or not I should commit any time at all and our travels through this gospel of grace to the timeline. That struggle has been real. There is no question that the significance of what has happened during this week was not only far-reaching, but let's be honest, it was world-altering. To divert attention away from these important events by getting into theological minutiae over something that really in the grand scheme of things is not all that important would be inappropriate. And yet, while I've steered clear of the weeds of such things as to keep our eyes perched high upon Mount Calvary, I don't believe it's beneficial for a pastor to stay away these type of issues altogether. In fact, I know several people who point to the perceived discrepancies in the timeline as a challenge to the inerrancy of Scripture itself. Avoidance isn't a wise or appropriate approach to exposition. When you teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you don't have the freedom to just avoid things you don't want to talk about. My job as your pastor is to be faithful to the text and address all issues 
even those that are problematic and difficult, even if in doing so, the exercise is, well, a bit academic. Now, we're going to finish chapter 19 this morning, trust me. So hold on. We'll, as a matter of fact, finish the study talking about an interesting man named Joseph of Arimathea. In doing so, we'll set the stage for next Sunday's study where we look at the resurrection. However, I do want to take ample time this morning to unpack this larger question as to the biblical timeline for Jesus' week of passion. When did these things actually happen? And to do this, I want to begin with what we know for certainty before we reach any conclusions. First, if you're a note taker, according to John 20, verse 1, Matthew 28, verse 1, Mark 16, verse 2, and Luke 24, verse 1, we know with absolute, complete certainty, the first thing, that the resurrection of Jesus took place early Sunday morning. Every record records it happening on the first day of the week. You can't debate that particular issue. In fact, the gathering of the church on Sunday, what we're doing right now, is a testimony of this very reality. We gather to celebrate the risen Lord. The second thing we, we know is that Jesus was dead for three days. And I say it very specifically, three days. Now, aside from the instances recorded in Mark 8, verse 31, and Luke 9, verse 22, as well as the moment that Jesus spoke figuratively of raising up his temple, his body, after its destruction on three days. Something, by the way, he'll be mocked for while hanging on the cross. The Gospel of Matthew provides for us the clearest examples of this reality. In Matthew 16, 21, 17, 23, and 2019, and if you're struggling writing these things down, it's all written down for you at c316.tv. Jesus will tell his disciples the following on three occasions, three separate occasions. He says that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, be killed, and note, and raised on the third day. Beyond these clear examples, another component is found recorded in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40. In this passage, we read the following. I'll read it for you. Jesus said, what well, we're told, Then some of the scribes, the Pharisees, they answered, they said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except, so he's going to give a sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus continues saying, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The question, and in many ways a contributing factor to the controversy at large, ultimately centers upon whether or not Jesus predicted he'd rise on the third day, following his death, or whether the resurrection occurred three days and three nights that he spent in the tomb. For example, the reason this is important, if Jesus spent three days and three nights, if that's what was required, there's no way that Jesus could have been crucified on Good Friday. Impossible. It doesn't fit. Now, while the plain reading of Jesus' comparison with Jonah 
implies a literal interpretation. This may not be the case, and I would caution about being dogmatic either way. Generally speaking, we have more references to Jesus' resurrection being on the third day as opposed to it being three complete days. Secondly, there is no question that Jesus' reference in this comparison between he and Jonah, the reference to being in the heart of the earth was intentionally figurative and not to be taken literally. Jesus, while in the tomb, didn't literally go into the center of the earth and spend three days and three nights there. He's referring to something more spiritual in nature. Beyond this, according to one Jewish expert, the phrase, three days and three nights, was common. It was a common figure of speech in Hebrew culture, implying that it shouldn't be referenced as a literal 72-hour period. This particular expert writes, a day and a night make a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. Admittedly, this gets further complicated by the fact that the Jews defined a day much differently than we do. They defined a day as beginning and ending at sunset, approximately 6 p.m. You go to Genesis 1. It was evening and morning that were the first day, not morning and evening. Now, there is no question your reading of this passage about Jesus and Jonah has implications if Jesus died at 3 p.m. on Friday, he'd been in the tomb a portion of three days. Friday for an hour or so. All day on Saturday. And then a few hours on Sunday. However, that would only include at best two nights, not three. I should also point out another problem with the 72-hour interpretation. According to Mark 16, verse 2, and Luke 24, verse 1, the women come to the garden tomb on Sunday, we're told very specifically, early, very early in the morning, only to find that Jesus was not there, but he had, been, he had risen. In fact, please note, the rolling away of the stone that happens at dawn upon their arrival, the earthquake, the angel making a pronouncement, all recorded in Matthew 28, the rolling of the stone was it to let Jesus out? <laughs> Instead, it was to let humanity in, to see that he was no longer there. In fact, we don't know the specific hour that Jesus rose from the dead. There was no one in the tomb with a stopwatch recording the official moment the body stirred. We don't know. You see, regardless of the day you settle on, Jesus, since he was laid in the tomb, we know with certainty, right before sunset, a rigid 72-hour interpretation of the reference to Jonah would actually require Jesus rise from the dead the evening of the third day and not the morning, again, which isn't historical or factual. Now, the third thing we can say with certainty. And the other gospel narratives agree with John's account. Is that the crucifixion itself and then Jesus' burial end up being expedited because, well, the Sabbath would begin at sundown. The Sabbath. Well, every Saturday was a weekly Sabbath. 
a day of rest, the Sabbath, a moment that began Friday at 6 p.m. Because this particular week, and note this, you're going to get very confused if you don't, because this week is the week of Passover and the day of unleavened bread. The Sabbath, the reference to a Sabbath, that's not as cut and dry as you think. A Sabbath can be on Saturday, but on this week, it can, well, it can actually be on a different day as well. Let me explain. In Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8, again, a passage of Scripture that's repeated in Numbers 28, verses 16 through 18. We read the following. Let me read you a section of Leviticus. These are the feasts of the Lord. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim at appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened, unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, and that's a Sabbath, a day of rest. You shall do no customary work on it. This is where things get complicated. If Passover, this particular week, if it fell on Friday, if Friday is the 14th day of the month, the first month, as it is traditionally believed, then the day of rest, this holy convocation, associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, would fall on the weekly Sabbath. No problem. And in fairness, that argument is entirely possible. However, if the Passover landed, if the 14th day of the month landed on, let's say, a Thursday, as others have argued, then what would have occurred would be the following. Friday would have been this holy convocation. Friday would have been a Sabbath, followed then by the weekly Sabbath on Saturday. In effect, you'd have two Sabbaths in a row, Friday and Saturday. In fact, when John adds, and we looked at it, when he says, for this Sabbath was a high day. Well, he could be referring to either scenario. Either this Sabbath was a second day of rest, or it was the typical Sabbath, but possessed deeper meaning because it was connected to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in order to avoid a problem that tends to arise when figuring in the Feast of Unleavened Bread into the timeline, Exodus 12, verses 17 and 18 add an important detail. This is what's written. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Now, follow me. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Now that appears to be a contradiction. When you put together the biblical mosaic, it would appear that while the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, of which the first day was the 15th of the month, according to Leviticus, that first day was to be a special Sabbath lasting till the 21st day. So seven days, right? 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st. So seven days. 
The scriptures, though, appear to present the actual day of unleavened bread. So you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but the day of unleavened bread seems to occur the evening of the 14th day, according to Exodus 12, meaning that it occurred in conjunction with the day of Passover. Now keep in mind, originally the killing of the Passover lamb, the baking of unleavened bread, all of that happened on the same day in the original Jewish history, in the Exodus. Moses came to the people and said, there's going to be an angel of death tonight. This final plague, it's going to break the back of, of Pharaoh. This is what you need to do tonight. You need to take a lamb, a ewe lamb. You need to kill it. You need to take the blood, put it on the doorposts. You need to eat it, consume it, eat this meal, and then you need to bake unleavened bread. You don't have time for it to rise. Bake it, flatbread, take it with you. All this happened on the same day, on the 14th day, and then the 15th began a, a recognition of unleavened bread itself. Not only, by the way, is that perspective consistent with what we find recorded in Matthew 26, verse 17, Mark 14, verse 12, and Luke 22, verse 7. I'll read you just a, a, a snippet. In Luke 22, verse 7, he actually records, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. It's likely these two events, unleavened bread, Passover, they occurred the same day and were described as being, and we see this in the Gospels, as this preparation day. We saw that in, in verse 31. Reference John 19. You'll also find the day of preparation mentioned in Mark 15, verse 42. Same context. Now, let me quickly recap. I know that's a lot. The biblical record of Jesus being raised on Sunday, specifically three days following his crucifixion, does nothing to definitively challenge the traditional understanding that Jesus died on what we call Good Friday, nor does your interpretation of the Sabbath. Because it could be both. It could be Saturday, it could be Friday and Saturday. However, the final point is where all of this becomes problematic. See, the fourth thing that we can say with certainty, and I think we can say it with certainty because of the rich, the clear Old Testament symbolism associated with the Passover, and then as it pertains to Jesus himself. In John's gospel, he's recalled. He's called the Lamb of God, sent to take away the sins of the world. So the fourth thing we can say with certainty because of the Old Testament symbolism is that Jesus had to have been crucified on Passover. To this point, let me read you the original instituting of the very first Passover that I mentioned earlier. We're told that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt and said, this month shall be your beginning of months. So he starts the calendar year here. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to the congregation of Israel and saying on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Four days later, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintels of the house where they eat it. A few verses later, verse 11, and thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt on this night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. This is where we get Passover. Pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now because we've already examined over the last few weeks how Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb, thereby the Passover foreshadowed the work Jesus had come to accomplish. I I don't want to get repetitive to those things. Other than to say this, to me it is inconceivable for Jesus not to have died on Passover. It doesn't work. While admittedly, this does complicate the timeline for the entire week. The larger picture, the typology, is too strong for any other conclusion. Jesus had to have died on Passover. In fact, from my perspective, the linchpin to establishing the timeline for Jesus' week of passion really boils down to the symbolism associated with the procedures concerning Passover. According to Exodus 12, every family was to select a lamb on the 10th day of the first month. And then you were to live with that lamb for four days, no doubt developing an important relational connection, because then on the 14th day, you would offer it as your sacrifice for sin. The lamb would be inspected, declared by the priest to be clean, executed. Now here's the problem with our traditional placement of the crucifixion. If Jesus' arrival on Palm Sunday occurred on the 10th of the month, in order to maintain the procedural symbolism concerning the Lamb, and the fact that Jesus was then crucified on the 14th Passover, then His death had to have occurred on Thursday and not Good Friday the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th. Let me present for you what I believe to be the most consistent timeline for the events we've been studying over the last several weeks and the one that to me makes the most sense. (laughs) In fact, if you go back and you listen to any Good Friday message I've taught, uh, I'm going to correct the record because I was wrong. It's okay to be wrong. On the 10th of the month, Sunday, which began, by the way, Saturday at 6 p.m., constituting day one of the Feast of Passover, the day that's also the first day of inspection, the inspection of the lamb, the lamb being presented, chosen. What happens? Jesus makes his triumphal entry, presenting himself to the city. On the 11th of the month, this is Monday, which began Sunday at 6 p.m., constituted day two of the Feast of Passover, we have the second day in which the Lamb was inspected. The 12th and 13th, Tuesday and Wednesday, then constitute days three and four, also of the inspection. On the 14th day of the month, day five, which would have began Wednesday at 6 p.m., we have Jesus sharing a Seder meal with His disciples. Also should note 
the day of unleavened bread begins. Same with Passover. Later that morning, after a lengthy inspection, as the Passover lamb, Pontius Pilate, declares Jesus to be innocent. A thorough examination. However, he's still crucified. As the Lamb of God, offered on Passover for the sins of the world. Because the 15th of the month, day 6, began Thursday at sunset or 6 p.m. and initiated these seven holy days encompassing the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we have now a special holy convocation, a Sabbath. As a result, Jesus' body is quickly removed from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, laid in a garden tomb before the day can begin. Day 15. Following his first complete day in the tomb, Thursday to Friday evening, Jesus will also rest for a second complete day on the 16th of the month, which is officially the weekly Sabbath. Began Friday at 6 p.m. and Saturday at sunset. That's day seven. Jesus will eventually rise from the dead at some point in the morning of the 17th of the month, day eight or Sunday, which began Saturday at 6 p.m. and officially marked the start of a new week. Jesus' death on Thursday not only places his resurrection on the third day, but it fulfills the concept, at least in principle, of three days and three nights. Thursday evening, one. Friday, one. Friday evening, two. Friday, uh, Saturday, two. Saturday evening, three. Sunday morning, three. On the third day, but at least part of three days and three nights. Aside from this timeline being consistent with the Passover festivities, it also works in the time frame presented to us in John's Gospel. And we have not discussed this yet. We've passed over a few things in order to get to this moment. Back in John 12, verse 1, he writes, kind of setting the stage here, then six days before Passover... Jesus came to Bethany. Now, you read forward, Mary anoints Jesus. This beautiful act of worship ensues. Fast forward to verses 12 and 13, same chapter. John then writes, continuing, the next day, which would be five days before Passover. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, placing Passover now, fifth day, Thursday. A great multitude had come for the feast. They heard Jesus was coming. They took palm branches. They came out to meet him. We find his triumphal entry. Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. Well, traditionally, most Christians place Passover as beginning on Thursday of this week at sunset and therefore ending Friday at dusk before the start of the weekly Sabbath, meaning Jesus is crucified on Good Friday, I think that creates more problems than answers. Big problems. Problems where you start questioning whether or not, you know, there's discrepancies. This doesn't jive. I think it's, it's a sad result of just a lack of biblical understanding. See, what makes to me more sense, and the way that you avoid so many of the controversies, is just if you move the timeline 
from Good Friday up one day. Everything then falls into place. Jesus arrives on Sunday, Palm Sunday, the 10th of the month. He then dies on Thursday, the 14th of the month. Friday, special Sabbath, followed by the normal weekly Sabbath before the resurrection, starting a brand new day. To be fair, and and this is to all arguments involved, if you want to still hold to a Good Friday perspective, say you have a Catholic background and that's just something where you're like, I can't accept that. It's okay. It's okay. Because you can still make make Good Friday work. But the only way you can is you have to move Palm Sunday to Monday. You can believe in Good Friday, but you can't believe in Palm Sunday. It's Palm Monday, which no one celebrates. Palm Sunday, by the way, side note, it's very hard to find historical data on the origins of Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Easter Sunday makes sense, the resurrection, first day, etc. Very hard to find historical data. The earliest I can place either of those two traditions developing is in the 8th century. And more than likely, the decisions to place them on those days had nothing to do with the Bible and had everything to do with just good days when people already came to church, you know, on Sunday. And then, you know, we can't do Thursday because people work. So let's just do Friday when people are done with work. It's the best I can come up with. Thursday supports the three-day position. It seems to be more in line with the way that Scripture establishes things. So let me just summarize. It's what you should take away from this. You can trust that the biblical timeline works. It does. You can trust that the scriptural narrative can then be trusted. And then you can just shrug your shoulders and say that most of the confusion we have can be attributed to the Roman Catholic Church. So let's get back to the text. Verse 31, we'll just reread it. There before, because it was the preparation day. And I hope that means something more now. That the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Again, that, that should mean something more. It wasn't a normal Sabbath. It was a high Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate, so they make a request of Pontius Pilate, that those on the cross, their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now since this was a special Sabbath, it would begin at sunset, the Jews, and when we find this, the Jews, it's a, it's a definitive article, the Jews. This is the religious leaders, the establishment folk. The special Sabbath is coming. They, they receive special permission. Can we expedite this process? the deaths of these men. To accomplish that, as was customary in these type of dynamics, each man, their legs would be broken, thereby eliminating the ability to push up to breathe. Once your legs were broken, death on a cross was swift. 
John records that, quote, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, there was now no longer a reason to break his legs. That said, because these men were professionals, to avoid any mistakes, to ensure Jesus was really deceased, the legionnaire drives his spear through the fifth inner space between Jesus' ribs, upward through the pedicardium into his heart. Now, don't forget, John is there. He's the only disciple at the cross. He's an eyewitness to what happens next. And he tells us. He says, they do this, they take the spear, they push it up, and out from the wound flowed this combination of blood and water. Immediately came out. Now, that's significant. Because what it tells us is is that the post-mortem autopsy is that Jesus died not in the usual crucifixion death of suffocation. But instead he died of heart failure, cardiac arrest. That as his his heart was struggling to pump oxygen-deprived blood through his body, that pockets of serum developed on the outside, starting to compress the heart. His heart ruptured, heart attack. Verse 35, And he who has seen... Has testified. He's saying, I'm testifying. He who has seen, my testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John's like, I was there. Now, the reason John does this, and we'll get into this next Sunday, is that there, there were rumors swirling that, well, maybe, you know, it's hard to explain the resurrection of Jesus, so maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe the swoon theory. Jesus looked like he was dead, and they take him off the cross, and they lay him in the tomb. But then the the cold air, you know, causes his body to kind of... He was in bad shape, but not really dead. And John's like, that's hogwash. I was there. I watched it. I watched the post-mortem. Roman soldiers didn't make mistakes when it came to crucifixions. John also adds for us a little bit of biblical commentary as to why this was significant that his legs weren't broken. He says, for these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. An acceptable Passover sacrifice couldn't have any broken bones. John adds, and again another scripture, and he quotes Zechariah 12 verse 10, that they shall look on him who they pierced. Verse 38, and after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. Now, as a condemned man, as a crucified man, as a guilty criminal, there was no circumstance, there was no procedure to disposing of a crucified body. They'd take the body and just throw it in the garbage pit. They didn't care. It was the last act of kind of defiance. And yet, Joseph of Arimathea, thinking this can't happen with Jesus, he goes to Pilate. He's getting permission. And Pilate gives it to him. So he came, and we're told he took the body of Jesus, and notice this, and Nicodemus. And in case you forget who he is, John tells us, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh, and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, they, they bound it in strips of linen, spices, as was the custom of the Jews to bury. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus. Because of the Jews' preparation day, the tomb was nearby. Now there's a lot about this passage that we're going to get to next Sunday. Just imagine just the process of, of, of removing Jesus' body from the cross alone. What that must have been like. To then have cleaned his body, prepared his body. for bur- I mean, just for these two men, I th- there's a lot to unpack there. Also, there's some things to talk about in regards to the garden tomb. That being said, I want to talk about the men themselves because they're fascinating to me. Before we do, Mark 15 gives us a few extra details. Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate, asked for the body. Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead. So he summoned the centurion and asked him if Jesus had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted, which is to give as a present, the body to Joseph. Which again, you should note, Pilate ensures, makes sure Jesus is dead before he gives the body away. Another historical fact. But beyond the accounts of John and Mark, Matthew 27, we also learn that Jesus was a rich man. In Luke 23, we're told that aside from being a a council member, Joseph was a good and just man who had not consented to their decision about Jesus and their deed. It's amazing, Joseph of Arimathea a man that kind of comes into the story here at the end, is one of only a few mentioned in all four gospel records. Every account of Joseph presents him as a prominent council member, which means he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. But the word prominent means that he wasn't just a member, that he was an honorable member respected by his peers. The Talmud mentioned that there were only 14 honorable council members, prominent ones, in Jewish history. A distinction here of this man. Beyond his terrible company, because the other members were wicked men, Joseph was just a good and decent, a good, just man. He was a good guy. Personal character, integrity. Beyond that, Joseph was loaded. The word that Matthew uses for rich indicates considerable wealth. And then you can note, because of the wealth came power and influence. Case in point, you would need to have a certain measure of clout to request a personal audience with Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, grant one, and then him feeling inclined to give you what you asked. Mark tells us that aside from these things, Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. Which means that likely... As a member of the the religious community, he was eagerly awaiting the promises concerning the the, the Messiah, what the Old Testament said about the Messiah, when he'd come, what he'd do, what he would establish. This likely, by the way, explains, while Joseph being from the town of Arimathea, which is about 25 miles north in the region of Ephraim, Joseph... So so his family's from Arimathea, which means that they have a family tomb in Arimathea, but he's in Jerusalem, and he buys a new tomb, which was incredibly costly. A tomb brand new had never been used, which we'll explain more in the weeks to come. Why would he do this? Well, because he's waiting for the kingdom of God, 
And because of the Old Testament scriptures, he wanted to be buried in Jerusalem so he was close to the action and he would be one of the first resurrected. He's a good man, a religious man, a holy man. And yet we're also told, according to John, that while a disciple of Jesus, he was secretly because he feared the Jews probably explains why, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he hadn't consented to what they had done. Though the council had had sentenced Jesus to death, the decision had been far from unanimous. We know two, on the record, dissenting, Joseph and Nicodemus. Though Joseph had requested permission to provide Jesus a proper Jewish burial, he needed help retrieving the body. This was a, a, at least a two-man task. So he recruits Nicodemus, who we read about in John 3. They bring this mixture of myrrh and aloes. Nicodemus, also influential member of the Sanhedrin in his own right. History says that Nicodemus, who may have been the brother of first century historian Josephus, there's some evidence to that, was the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem during his day. By the way, both of these men would lose everything from going public following Jesus. They believe in Jesus. This is interesting. They personally consider themselves disciples, right? But John says that they remain silent, secret, because they feared the repercussions that would come with being identified with Jesus. These men were smart. They were savvy. They were well-connected. They knew the current political climate around Jesus. They feared, and probably justly, that being a known disciple of Jesus might cost them, at a minimum, their social position. More extensively, it could have even cost them political power, their friends, reputation, status, livelihood. You know, the brutal and honest truth is that neither Joseph or Nicodemus, were actually disciples of Jesus at all. They thought they were disciples, but they were tragically deceived. And here's why. The simple reality is you can't genuinely follow Jesus without being willing to publicly identify yourself with Jesus, even if doing so comes at great personal risk. You might say a willingness to count the cost is the first essential component to following Jesus. Though neither Joseph nor Nicodemus had by this point been willing to go public, to take a stand, now something has changed. We're not given the reason. We're not afforded an explanation, but I think it's safe to say that it was seeing the crucified Christ in contrast to the blatant immorality and viciousness of the so-called religious leaders. That contrast, it stirred something in both men. They had to act, even if they were late. You might say, and you would be correct, that the cross changed everything for Joseph and Nicodemus. Though we're not told, I don't think it's going out on a limb because the cross changes everything for us. I'm convinced, as the brightest religious minds in all of Israel, 
Joseph and Nicodemus, they realized what Jesus was doing on the cross. Their theology began to, to come together. The dots started to connect. They started to see what was occurring. And then the veil was torn in the temple. The significance of the moment, it struck them both. This wasn't an ordinary man. They reached the same conclusion as that centurion. He's the son of God. Because of their theology, they knew Passover, the Lamb of God. Jesus was taking God's wrath upon Himself. He was offering Himself as a permanent, perfect Passover sacrifice so that their sins and yours and I could be forgiven so that we could boldly approach the throne of grace. It was in light of Jesus' public death for them that Joseph and Nicodemus were now willing to publicly stand for him. These secret followers were now willing to be identified as public disciples. John says that while fear had kept them on the sidelines, Mark is clear that Joseph, he doesn't just go request the body, he took courage, courageously petitioning him. This phrase, taking courage, it means that he shunned fear. Fear was still there. But he wouldn't allow it to deter him from doing what he knew he needed to. He was filled with boldness. He's been decided to go on the record. They were finally willing to count the cost and get off the sidelines. Friend, I close with this. And it's that an understanding of the cross really does change everything. It doesn't allow you to stay as you are. That can be a good thing and a bad thing. It will either drive you to your knees and open your hands to receive forgiveness, or it will cause you to dig your heel in deeper and clench your fists tighter in hatred. But it always yields a result. No man or woman can come to the cross and not be affected. You see, if you fully understand that God's grace bestowed towards you cost Jesus everything. And doesn't the cross represent that? And we talk about the free aspects of grace. It's free to be received, and that's true. But never ever see the free nature of grace to the recipient as meaning it's cheap. Grace was far from cheap, though it cost you nothing. It cost Jesus everything. The grace demonstrated towards you was the costliest thing ever, the blood of Christ. Which only sweetens the gift itself because it was so expensive. You see, if you understand God's grace, if you understand that it cost Jesus everything, it is that understanding that makes it so much easier to take a step back, to count the cost, and to make a decision to follow him. Friend, I just say, in light of the fact that Jesus gave everything for you, why wouldn't you give it all for him? So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.